Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. And today we are returning to you with part two of Danvers State Hospital. Lunatic Asylum, Insane Asylum, Sanatorium, call it what you will. And more of like the gruesome details on the matter. This one's going to get a little... Into the weeds. Yeah, we probably should put a little disclaimer. Yeah. We are going to be talking about some grotesque things, lobotomies, um, definitely some abuse happening in these facilities. So Nothing too wild. Yeah, we we don't get crazy on this podcast. Just so you know, so you're ready. Uh, And you'll be keeping up, so you'll know what's going on. Uh, But do we have anything to, to, to talk about this week? I did want to say a quick shout out to Amanda. I ran into this fabulous listener at Deacon Giles Distillery, which, by the way, we don't go there enough. I forgot how good their drinks are. Their drinks are strong. Oh, yeah. That's why we don't go there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I had a drink with uh, uh, one of our our favorite listeners there a few months ago. That was fun. And their drinks are strong. Very strong. Yeah. But good. Good. Good spot. Um, And they have karaoke every Thursday. I did not know that they did karaoke. Yeah. I could be wrong on the day of the week, but they do do a weekly karaoke. But sorry. Back to Amanda. We meet people all the time. And sometimes, like, they really stick out. And I was just having, like, an off day, you know. Um, It's the slow season. And Amanda, the things you said to me... I tell you, not only did you pull me out of my bad feelings, but I think you set me off for the next month. So, oh. like, just very kind things that I will keep with me forever. So, thank, thank you. Amanda. And just, like, thank you to all the listeners in general. You guys are awesome. Yeah. We have, like, the best audience I think anyone could ask for. Everyone says that. Everyone's like, oh, our listeners. Yeah, but are- we actually mean it. <laughs> and, and we get to meet you. Right. Right. And have like conversations with you and chat with you and you know, get a drink with you. And that's, geek out about Salem with you. Yeah. And that's like super cool. Speaking of uh, geeking out about Salem. We do have some insider scoop to share with you guys. <laughs> I, I wonder, we can't get in trouble for this, right? No. 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 Yeah. I mean, we weren't there. No. But. We have informants. We have informants. And so. Friends. Some some of you may have seen this floating around in the ether, social media ether. There is a musical uh, being produced about Salem. Possibly. Possibly. So it's in like early stages of production, yeah. right? But it's like, it's down in New York City. Yep. It would be what I would assume like off-Broadway to so, s- if they make it. I'm not sure how that exactly works. So sort of the way a lot of these things work is you get a script you get a cast who's interested. And of course, a lot of these people all know each other. So you're like, hey, I wrote a script. Do you want to be in the thing? And they're like, yeah. okay, cool. We can try this. And then you you get the people to do it. And then you do some run-throughs. And if people are interested enough, if it generates that traction, then it goes forward. And then, of course, there's the money issue and you need sponsors and you need all these other stuff and locations. But one... The first stage of the process is these read-throughs. It's kind of like putting together like a TV show pilot. Yeah. Like if it, if it either works or it doesn't. Sure. So whether or not we're going to see a full production of this, I don't know. Uh, but I've told uh, some of our friends and listener that I was like, if this goes. Oh my God, we are so going. We are going. It is going to be a thing. We will make a trip of it. 
Oh my gosh, can, we could do a meetup. Yeah, yeah. I was like, we will meet you down there. We will have like a Salem the Podcast goes to Salem the Broadway show. I would love it. Except. I don't know if I'd love the, the show though, <laughs> based the, on the early reports. The, yeah. So one of our inside tracks is uh, my tour guide, Caroline. Uh, so she lives in New York full time and I just import her uh, for October. You can't always find a good ginger, right? You just got to import them sometimes. <laughs> So we're chatting and she's like, I'm going to go. I'm like, oh, let me know, et cetera. And just to clarify, not go to the musical. No. There was a read through. Yeah. So there were a couple nights of read throughs. Salem, the musical is very bad. <laughs> that's that's the first thing she said to you. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. And without getting too into it, some names, some time period, pop musical, Abigail is 16. She's from Boston. Has some boyfriend, <laughs> has some BFFs, might be lesbians. Cotton Mather lives in Salem. No witch cakes, no Tichaba, no victims. And then she goes, I talked to the writers afterwards. They didn't know who Giles Corey was. What? Oh my God, what? what? They refer to him as that rock guy. <gasps> what? Oh my God. Gosh, I wish I could have seen her face when she was there. I can't imagine. Oh, my gosh. How? Wow. So, like, when I had heard that this was happening, uh -huh. my immediate thought was Hamilton. Like, oh, people see the success of Hamilton. Yeah. They want to bring these historical stories to life in a modern way. Uh -huh. And I appreciate that. I think it's a great idea. If you could put a modern spin on the Crucible, do it. So... Uh, our other friend, who's one of our listeners, we'll talk about her in a second. I was saying the same thing to her. And I was like, but what I would love to see is a modern, set in modern times, recreation of the Salem Witch Trials that includes small town politics, maybe big country politics, maybe some racial divides, internet bullying, and uh, uh, toxic... Uh, household environments. So you take the conditions of the witch trials and just transplant them onto modern day, yeah. modern issues that we all deal with. Yeah. And if you do it well and you tell the story well, oh, see that would... I would like. Yeah. Gosh, you could set it in a... I think this is supposed to be a comedy, yeah. right? It's a musical yeah. comedy. Put it in a freaking high school. If you yeah. took no. Mean Girls and The Crucible and put those things with together... actual factual things... Yeah. And like like you see some real nasty shit going on on like Instagram bullying and stuff. And and I think we could really learn retelling of the Salem Witch Trials using the tools that we have today. Like if you're going to take something as serious as the trials, as serious of a tragedy it was, and yeah. the lessons that we can still learn, yeah. you might want to do it in a, a, a meaningful way, yeah. as you we say. We have the history. Just use the language that we are familiar with today. So let's talk a little bit about what our friend Valentine said about. I would love to. So I haven't read this either. Okay. She sent us a long, and thank you, Valentine. It was not too long by any means. I wanted all the information because we couldn't be there. And she went the day after Caroline went. So what do you got? Hit me. Hit me with what uh, Valentine says. What was the first line that Caroline said? I think it was just. Salem the musical is bad. It's bad. Um, <laughs> Valentine's first line was, okay, 
So the musical is not good. <laughs> so initial thought, mm-hmm. right, right there. She said, catchy music. Uh-huh. I did get that from Caroline as well. They did a 30-minute presentation with some songs and text for the reading. Basically, Betty and her friends sing about hoping Abigail or Abby finds her way and how the Bible is everything. Betty desperately wants love from her father. I guess Samuel Paris was played as a little dumb, she said. Okay. And portrayed by a black actor. Yes. Which is an interesting choice. And also to not have a Tichaba. Yeah. I'm right on that, right? There is no, no Tichaba. Do you, the, like, come on. The amount of hilarious lines that could be said from her perspective, just absolutely ridiculing and getting back at these colonists, like missed opportunity once again. We've got some local artists that like- <laughs> Mike Page. Mike Page. The ornaments, like w- the one that you got me for Christmas last year or my birthday, it said, oh, look, there's the expert on third nipples by <laughs> Tichaba, 1692. And obviously that's a joke. Yeah. But it is so- it is so funny in the fact that, like, there's this guy who literally thought, like, yes, you are a witch because you have this mark on your body. Like, the concept is laughable in modern day. This seems a little, I don't know, off. The fact that they don't have a Tichaba to begin with. Like, that's weird, right? That's a that's a hot take. Uh, you know, she's one of the, arguably one of the, the main protagonists. I mean, she's the first one to admit to being a witch. And like, I don't know. And probably one of the most interesting characters of yeah. them all. Yeah. And her race obviously does play a role. And I mean, race in general plays a strange role because I mean, they're all Puritans. They're all, and like I try and talk about this on tour, where like no one has different political ideas. No one has different social ideas. They're all the same people fighting this imaginary thing. So they all look like each other. They all sound like each other. They're all the out group. So you wouldn't have a minister who's different. Right. That's a It's it's a weird again, a very weird take. Yeah, because it said. matters to the story. So then we see the devil. I don't think we mentioned this. There is an actual devil. Oh yeah. In this yeah. cast list. No Tichaba, but nope. we have a devil. She told me, yeah. Played by a queer actor of color, which is cool. Um, Except but not. also like yeah, it's very weird. I don't, I don't like that. You, you, now you're literally shoehorning in this queer person of color as the devil. Like that's the bad guy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know the intentions behind this. So played by a queer actor of color, and the devil is apparently a gay guy with a very, like, very queer phrases and mannerisms, is what she says. So it's very like adamant or apparent. He talks with Abby. And through this, we kind of come to understand that Abby is a witch. She supposedly participated in those wood circles, the circles in the woods. That never happened. So my immediate reaction, maybe they want to give the devil some power. Sure. Maybe they're taking like a little Nas X approach to it. My honestly, my first like my first thought was Montero. Yeah, like yeah you've seen yeah. that music video, yes, of course. Yes. So, and it's supposed to be kind of like a modern interpretation. Do they want to give this devil power? So, like, yes, make it a flamboyant gay black man. But I, 
I don't, I don't know if they're hitting the mark. I think there is a space for that. I don't think this is the space for that. I agree. And I wonder if that does come from perhaps their ignorance on the topic mm-hmm. overall. Because, again, your instant reaction, I think I, I feel more in line with that now. Like, oh, no, that's, like, not a good thing. Because yeah. the Puritans genuinely thought the devil was the, the end of their everything. Like, right. that, the cause of all of their problems. So you cannot assign that to be someone who has been demonized throughout history. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. It's, it, again, another very weird, Pick. But, but seems intentional for what oh, that, that's got to be intentional. But for what reason? I think it, it definitely seems like they weren't fully understanding the seriousness of yeah. the loss. Like she said, there were no victims included in this. I feel like it would be really awesome if the same actor played like Stoughton, if there was a Stoughton character or a Hathorne character devil. or Cotton Mather character and the devil. Like it was the same character. So you're making that connection between the devil and the words and actions of these people in that's, power. That's fantastic. Jeffrey, we'll, let's... We'll, 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 we'll put that in our play. <laughs> we'll put that in our That's play. actually like really good. Thank you. That's Yeah, yeah. I love that. Ugh. Maybe before we go any further, we should just read... The whole cast list. Okay. Because there are some names on here that I think you guys will recognize, but also some that I have no idea where they're pulling from. So I don't think I could name any Broadway actors. I mean, I know. Oh, some. No, no, I mean like the characters, not the. Oh, act- you, oh. Jeffrey. <laughs> you said the cast list and I was like, I know some. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have been more specific. The, okay. the characters that are included. Okay, the, the characters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we have... Dun, 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 dun. And Abby Williams, specifically okay. Abby, not even written as Abigail with an in parentheses or anything, just Abby. Betty Paris. Uh-huh. Samuel Paris. Uh-huh. The Devil. Irma Bog. Olivia Bog. Okay. Mary, no last name. Mercy, no last name, which I'm assuming is referring to Mercy Lewis. Mm-hmm. Mary Mary Warren. Ooh, that's a good that's a good assumption. It would make sense for her to be one of the main accusing girls. Cotton Mather. Matthew Hopkins. Matthew Hopkins. I feel like I should know who that is. I know is. it sounds like a very like well known name, but I don't I don't know if I've ever come across a Hopkins in the trials at all. But then again, I mean there are so many names. There are yeah. so many names. I feel like Matthew Hopkins is. It sounds like an actor's name. Like a a cousin or a, a sibling or someone who arrested someone or someone who gave a deposition or someone like some, a, like a tertiary character. Oh, kind of like on the outskirts. Yeah, yeah. Maybe gave some testimony yeah. against someone. And that was the last one. He falls okay. under Cotton Mather. So one, two, three, four, five. Wait. Oh, yeah, we talked. And then three ensemble characters. So a eleven. We got about eleven people here. So it's it's relatively small. But I wonder I wanna know where they got the bog people from. There's those two women. Irma Bog and Olivia Bog. Wait, are there no judges? I wonder. Oh. Perhaps they were using Matthew Hopkins as a judge or you know, I don't know, dude. I that's 
I wish we would have been invited to this sit down, this reading, because <laughs> I'm so curious. Yeah, there, there's no judges. Like no Hathorn. Right, no right. No Corwin. So I guess you could be using no Stoughton. I think that's probably what's happening. And I think, isn't that what happens in The Crucible is Cotton Mather ends up being more of an integral character, like more of a big bad yeah, than he was yeah. in history. But I think that's also Hawthorne. Hathorne takes on that role as well mm-hmm. in The Crucible, that is. It's, it's just, a, it's an interesting take. And I am very curious to see where they pulled those bog uh, women from. And I even I mean, wonder if maybe they are actually using that as a like a literary device, like an actual reference to like bog people and like suggesting that these women are living on the outskirts, living, you know, in the woods, kind of on the fringes of society. So we're going to give them this kind of like swampy name because that's how we perceive witches in, our, you know, general understanding. Oh, I hate that. I know. I hate that so much. I but I could see it happening. It kind of fits, and I don't. Bog people are fantastic. I mean, like. Oh, you mean like the people that like die and get in, yeah entombed and yeah. morbid? Does an awesome episode oh, on bog they are people. So cool. They look so cool. Their bodies are so the the, the preservation chemicals and the bog everything down their hair follicles and 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 the dye of their clothes, like. Oh. Yeah, but I don't think that's what these okay. I mean, people that's, that's were fair. We're yeah. going for, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting cast choice you know what would be fun if we put it out to our listeners who would you want to see if you were to produce a play on the salem witch trials if you could only choose like a dozen characters from our general pool of accusers accused victims judges propaganda artists artists like cotton mather who would you choose to make up your cast if you only had like 12 people, think about it. Think about it. We'll think about it. I don't it. even know. This is, this is a homework assignment. I feel like, I feel like off the bat, I'd go three, 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 and three. Well, we don't need to get into okay, it. Okay. 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 <laughs> and then Valentine said there was a really weird scene of people being tortured in the streets of Salem. And when they appear, a lot of the audience laughed as they took postures of being tortured and throughout the song they say they just wait for the chain for the gallow to be hanged on all hollows eve so that's so they were laughing yeah it's which not, is like the audience i miss like us yeah, like yeah, if yeah. we were to go can you imagine us in that room i would what i'm not sure if she meant audience as in us or audience as in no i think i think she meant i think she meant the people in the room listening to the script yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, like, the people that she was with. Yeah. The final song we heard was two women accused of witchcraft in jail. We understand that they were Abby's friends and that they helped Abby realize that there was a life outside of the Puritan world. They're wearing leather jackets and jeans, whereas the other girls were all wearing skirts and dresses. I'm very curious about the wardrobe choices here because if you look at the promo image, it's like a Puritan bonnet and, and collar. collar. Yeah. Yeah. Their song is more country than the others, and they have Southern accents while singing. So Southern accents, leather jackets and jeans in jail singing. This is so weird. They are sisters, unmarried, and ready to flee Salem if they get out of jail. 
the song, maybe that's what Caroline was referencing when she was talking about lesbians, like unmarried no, spinster was, women, um, or the actual, the girls themselves, the ones pointing fingers. Oh, no, maybe it was them. These and, two these two women? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> and they uh, are sisters? Yes. Okay. So Caroline got a... So they have the same last name, I think the characters do? Probably. Caroline got a they're together vibe. Valentine did not. But then when I said it to her, she was like, oh my gosh, I see that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so not sure if they're sisters or they're partners. Right. But like, even if they were partners, they wouldn't have the same last name. Married. No, but even then, you I, can't do that back then. I, I, I know. So, no, no, no. I think, see, I, I unmarried, that's what I was thinking. It's like, you have these unmarried women, which was typical for witchcraft accusations. But then when I told Valentine, she's like, oh, yeah, because she says that she could see it okay. interpreted that way. That Interesting. That it does read that way. But yeah, I guess the, the song was basically, we're damned if we don't, damned if we do kind of situation. The rest of the cast joined in and sang at the end. Some of the songs were quite catchy. Uh, they chose, and they chose a really good cast, she said. But it really seems like the creative team just read slash saw The Crucible and didn't do much more research than that. Abigail is more like a teenager, just like The Crucible, not 11. And they really make it as if she's the one who decided everything, which I think by this point we know, if you've listened to the podcast long enough, it's a lot of the uh, adults that are pulling the strings yeah. there. And there's so many more factors outside of these young girls. And I think we could all say that um, the Putnams kind of had a, well, a bigger you know. hand in it. They give her way more power than in history, but also make her have more remorse. And, and also make her someone who was accused of being a witch herself, which makes it even more confusing, which I would definitely agree with that. It's just bizarre because she doesn't just accuse. Yeah, she's, she's playing both sides of the fence. Yeah. Valentine also says, I think making it a comedy is weird because it was unsettling hearing people laugh during the song when people were being tortured. Like Hamilton has some really awesome, and sorry to keep relating no, no, it yeah. back to that, but I feel it's like that's... a historic play. Yeah. They do a really good job at taking the history and telling that story, not only in like a factual, accurate way, but an entertaining way that has smart humor and also is very upfront about the injustices from that time and every decision they made with the casting and with, the language used was all very deliberate. So if you're going to take something as substantial as the Salem witch trials and try to do something similar, you got to like you got to be ready to put some put something real together. And it's a shame because we have so I have to go back and I want to go listen to the music because there's so many documents that we do have. You could work the real language into it. Absolutely. In so many interesting and unique ways. Like that that line that is it Cotton Mather or Increase Mather says about how it's better to have innocence go free than one witch yeah. die. Yeah. Or something. I'm not. I'm butchering it. That's a Lin Manuel Manuel Lin Manuel Miranda. You got a whole lot 
but like things like that, yeah. these 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 moments from the trials that are live so iconically in our minds. Fucking Giles. God will give Giles you blood Cor- to drink. God will give you blood to drink. Is there even a Sarah Good on this cast list? Like more weight. Ugh. So much could be done with this. It is uh, a shame. Dirty, nasty slut. Oh my goodness. Like, come on. Come on. Third I, nipples. Did they yeah. even talk about third nipples? And I think as well as all that, it could also be done very well as a comedy. Oh, 100%. I don't know where that line is. I couldn't construct that. But you could laugh through a lot of it if they made it a little ridiculous, had all these accuracies, and you could see the transparency of the stupidity and worked in some intelligent humor. It could be very funny. And you could still walk away having learned actual factual understandings instead of this like weird i don't even know what to call this interpretation i just had gosh we really need to make this thing happen like not this thing but like hey writers come sit down we'll tell you some good stories about (laughs) this like i'm imagining imagine like a set where it is the courtroom the puritan courtroom and you've got the chaos going on with the girls and the accused and we we've gone over some ridiculous stories remember the drunk men that saw these visions at night in the woods the three yeah 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 that they they thought they saw tichaba and sarah good sarah osborne turn into animals right before their very eyes like imagine you've got these like two or three bimbo dudes like recounting this drunk uh, night hey, that man, they have I was walking in the woods there's a fucking shadow dude yeah and, and and you've got it like replaying behind them with just these ridiculous you know displays of it what could, they would be. have seen i think we might have an idea here we so. have such a good idea <laughs> Jeffrey, let's make let's make a play. <laughs> let's write a play. <laughs> You're not entirely wrong. I think we could we could we could kill that. We could definitely. Okay, so that's uh we'll add that to our <laughs> 2025 list. <laughs> Seven? 2027? We got we got a lot to do in 2025. Oh, okay. That's three years from now, Jeffrey. But it'll be on the list. But yeah, if uh, we'll we'll keep you guys updated on if this goes any further. Uh, Salem the musical, a comedy. I hope that they were able to get some good feedback. Right, from and so that's the, the other reading. thing is this isn't a final draft. The writers and editors they they, they talk to Caroline and she gives which trial tours here in Salem for me. You know, they talk to to Valentine, who's you know an avid listener of the podcast and um you know a, a huge. She's a descendant. Uh, She's yes. like, she's the huge Salem lover. Yeah. I was going to say his, which trials buff history yeah. buff. Yep. Yeah. She knows her stuff. And so like, we know at least at this point, the writers of the script have had people who are knowledgeable on the subject be involved in the conversation, what they take away from that. And if they restructure anything, time will tell. I think if the initial reactions are to this degree, I'm hoping yeah. that we don't see it go further. In this way. I hope there are are improvements that are made, but we will see. (laughs) Time will tell. Hamilton references right there. Nice. I love Hamilton. So good. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, we just, we had to share that. Yeah. Uh, And real quick, before we jump on the boat, Salem So Sweets this weekend. Yes. Come. Have some chocolate. See some ice sculptures. Do some local shopping. Drink some wine. Have a good time. 
Spread the love. And if you haven't told us about your love story in Salem. You may have missed the deadline. Get that in. It, like immediately, like right now. Yeah. Bad Tinder date, best Tinder date, marriage, naked proposals. We'll one ta- of my favorites. We'll take it all. Yes. <laughs> Go Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was great meeting them. Anyway, so back to Hathorn Hill. And Danvers State Lunatic Hospital or State Lunatic Asylum at Danvers, something like that. Yeah. So many names. Any any of these work. We kind of talked in our last episode about the geographic location as well as some of those early years, the early decades when, you know. When there was a good, healthy uh, place where, where you could help your mental health, where you could get the help you need, where you could get some fresh air, where you could grow your vegetables and make your own shoes. <laughs> it was a good spot. Yeah. Nothing like the... Uh, the asylum nightmares we're so accustomed to. Oh, those great horror video games, movies, TV shows. Now, a lot of that comes from a variety of factors. So, A, overcrowding, which we're going to talk about first. Uh, but you also get, and, and this kind of goes hand in hand, defunding, which yep. we'll see in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners probably remember this happening and we also get some more controversial techniques being introduced uh, certain therapies that many would call um borderline torture at this point sure i think a lobotomy would be considered torturous we'll talk about it okay (laughs) i I have weird opinions pro lobotomy bro we'll talk about it okay (laughs) The answer's complicated. So where do we want a 1901? So remember, Danvers State opened its doors on May 1st, 1878. Okay. And then we see the first patient. On May 13th. There we go. By 1900, so just... Remember, we got a capacity of about 500. Yes, 500 with the option of putting about 1,000 people in the attic space if Mm -hmm. necessary. So, but... Ideally, they wanted to keep it at 500. But by 1900, that patient number had swelled to 2,000. And at its peak, it would sit around 2,600. That's the mid-1900s. Opened to house 500 people, but now they're at 2,000. And and the staff size remains the same. If not shrinks over time. Yeah. So... Danvers had originally been built to alleviate overcrowding at the hospitals and the almshouses in and around the Boston area, but they had hit max capacity themselves. From its opening to 1900, they had already successfully treated 9,500 patients, which is, we talked a little bit about in the last one, their cure rate was high. They, yeah. they were successful in those early decades. And so that's one of the reasons that it goes downhill is because like, oh my gosh, these guys are good. It's a great place. And people just keep getting sent there. And and I, I think we talked about this overcrowding thing a little bit, but I think if you just had more staff, I mean, the overcrowding is one thing, but those buildings were big. Those buildings were huge. 500 gives a lot of people a lot of space. You could have taken the space size down a little bit, 
and they they did they continued to build additional buildings. If you'd built a few more wards, a few more residences, and kept it in the same style, and added staff, and added funding, I think it. I don't think it would have had the problem. But that's not where mental health was headed, unfortunately. No. Which is a darn shame because it's the 1900s and we're actually learning stuff. I mean, like sort of, but we're learning stuff unethically. So you mentioned that uh, buildings were being added to accommodate not just more patients, but staff members as well. Right around the turn of the century, we saw a new nurse's ward go up called Gray Gables. Which is a really cool name. Such a cool name. One of my favorite things I think I learned over the course of this research, going back to Judge Hathorne and the witch trials, supposedly... I haven't found any actual proof of this. Supposedly, the door knocker that was on his home was then put on Gray Gables. Interesting. It has since been demolished, and the door knocker is gone. Personally, I chalk this up to just local superstition. There's a good, like... 200 year gap between Hathorne's day and this time but hey it's kind of cool to think about the possibilities right it it is possible it's possible I wouldn't say probable but possible so we've got more and more people coming in there are reports of folks just wandering the hall in almost a zombie vegetative state This was a reality Mm -hmm. for some of the folks at Danvers State. Which, like I said, is sort of really uh, tragic because it is in the early 1900s and through the mid-1900s that we learn more about psychology. And I think they got carried away, though. I think, if anything, they're like, (laughs) oh, this works. Let's just keep doing it. Well, so it didn't actually work. It's again when these issues in in the 1900s when it comes to psychology is, is very, very problematic. We learn so much, but we do it in some very inhumane ways. Uh, The idea of informed consent. Doesn't exist. Does not exist. Uh, And we're taking some very base level understanding of behavior and whatnot and making some very wide assumptions with that instead of understanding an individualistic approach, we're being like, this is how the brain works. And you're like, but again, it's one of these things that you're like, we couldn't be where we are today. If we didn't go through these trials and tribulations of then. Yeah, which is really bad. But it's like, um, I just jotted some more important ones down because I couldn't remember them. It's been a little while since I sat through a psych class. Mm-hmm. Pavlov's 1904. Ah, uh, Pavlov's dogs. Yeah. So we're getting an understanding of that. Where um, they salivated at the sound of a bell. Yeah. Because they knew that they would be fed. Uh, Little Albert was an experiment with a child by Watson. Ah, yes. That's 1920. And like it teaches us so much. And the experiments that have come from that with better informed consent, not torturing a child... You're like, oh my gosh, you really helps to understand child development. But some of those first earmarked things are like, we did. They, they would have never flown in today's we, we did world. What? The prison experiment. Yeah. That so was another S- one. Stanford doesn't come around until 71 with Zimbardo. And 
that's horrific on any number of counts. When the participants were either assigned to be a guard or a prisoner, and it spirals into chaos and this horrid hierarchy of power and abuse. Within days. Within days. So Um, imagine also taking that just knowledge of human condition and putting that in an asylum context. context. is vaguely double-blinded. There's some argument that he had his left hand in it. Um, but one of the issues we find with the Stanford Prison Experiment is all of the participants were students at Stanford University. They were all 18 to 22-year-old white men. Privileged men. Stanford University. They did not have any training, any exercise, any medical, any... And so that then... His results, and one of the reasons he did it the way he did it is because we're coming out of World War II and Nazi Germany, and why did the guards just do what they were told? Well, when you put someone in that position, they then just do what they're told, which is coming off of uh, Milgram, <laughs> 1961, which I Ooh, didn't have to that's the shock one. Up. Yes, the shock one. Yeah. Um, so, I rem- so, I'm, I'm kind of impressed by how much I remember from my side. I haven't taken a psych <laughs> course in like 10 years. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, Milgram, 1961, uh, is the electroshock. So you're sitting in a room and someone comes in, they say, shock this person. You do it and you do it and you do it. And people just keep hurting other people. Even though they can hear, yeah. it, it grows and grows to the point where you can hear the person in the other room screaming. And then eventually it goes silent. And these people... Correct me if I'm wrong. They weren't told immediately. Like no. some of them were genuinely affected by this, thinking that they may have killed someone. Yeah. Um, but that then calls into question. But from these experiments, we do learn so much. And Zimbardo, people have so many issues with. And I'm like, yeah, it's immoral, it's wrong, et cetera. But what happens if we had educators in those facilities? What happens if we had someone who had been trained in these facilities? What happens if we had women in these positions? What happened if we had senior people who were in their 50s and 60s who had been in these positions their whole lives? That is totally different than a bunch of 20-year-old college dudes. It's not a good representation of like the population. It is not in yeah. any way. But it does really help lay the groundwork for the things that we can learn and understand today. About authority and so, yeah, so yeah, it's complicated, but it is weird to see the correlation of the rise in understanding and the decline in the treatment of mental health. I also wonder if some of that goes in line with the commercialization of healthcare as well. Like, remember, this is technically a state, yeah, yeah. hospital. Um, obviously, we had private hospitals back then. A lot of the early medical practices like those are a doctor that you they come to your house house call you pay him a bill yep there you go but perhaps there were there they found that there was more money to be made and state funding is not always adequate and unfortunately that money just kept getting lower and lower and lower as the decades went on i do want to talk about lobotomies yeah. Just because everyone loves talking about him. <laughs> and I had seen references to Danvers State being like super connected to the lobotomy. I don't think any more so than any other institution of the day. So Danvers first used the procedure 
1948, but it was discovered or pioneered more than 10 years prior. So it comes from the Greek word lobos or lobe and tommy or to cut or slice. So if you don't know what a lobotomy is, there you go. It's basically severing the connections in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, those frontal lobes that control a lot of like decision making um, and like personality traits, your disposition. And back in this time, they believed that this could be used to treat epilepsy, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, among a whole other list of sexuality. Homosexuality. Don't forget, there was a time where that was um, that was actually in the DSM as yes, a as a medical disability. So recently, very recently, I would say pretty much everyone living. There's probably the DSM three or four. I don't know when it was actually removed. If you're older than a Gen Z, it was probably there. But yeah, they thought that the lobotomy was kind of like a cure all. It could eradicate the symptoms associated with all these diseases and a successful procedure would result in the patient being more cooperative, calm, quiet, docile, childlike. And in many of the cases, this went all the way to being completely incapacitated, unable to speak, unable to walk, and did result in death in several cases as well. I think about a 15, 20% death rate, which is stupid high. Very high. Just a bit. You're stabbing an ice pick into someone's skull. And as you said, uh, informed consent was not a thing. I wonder how many of these people, yes, it was a mainstream procedure that I'm sure some folks requested. They sought it out. Absolutely did. 100%. However, I do wonder how many times people were just forced into it and had absolutely no autonomy over their own body. Do you want to go into how it works or do you want me to go into how it works? Are you going to talk about the lobotomy or the leucotomy? Lobotomy. Okay. So before you talk about the lobotomy, because it's technically not like the first rendition of it, the leucotomy was kind of like the precursor just by a year. uh, And that was done by a Portuguese doctor a psychiatrist, and his surgeon partner. So oftentimes it wouldn't be done by the psychiatrist because it is technically surgery. It would be done with a surgeon alongside. However, (laughs) that wasn't always the easiest, you know, two people. Let's try to simplify the procedure is basically what ends up happening. So that first leucotomy was done with a instrument, well, actually, the first leucotomy, before they even used instruments, was done by injecting pure alcohol into the brain. Okay, and be- that one. Yeah, Jeffrey's like, uh... I'm, I'm on the drilling holes into the side of the head. That comes next. Obviously, this is just to, like, erode, eradicate that prefrontal lobe. That didn't work, um, so they started using a tool that had a retractable wire and they'd kind of, you know, shimmy it in there and pull those, pull those connections apart. Hard pass. Same. And as soon as these doctors in Portugal, Antonio Moniz and Pedro Lima, as soon as they 
came out with the procedure, doctors from all over the world started replicating, replicating, tampering, expanding, expanding, perfecting in their mind. And this is where we see the actual lobotomy that we are so familiar with. And we have Walter Jackson Freeman II to thank (laughs) for that one. I just have him as Dr. Freeman, but... (laughs) Dr. Freeman. Come on, Walter. What do you got for us? <laughs> so you asked me before my, my thoughts on the lobotomy. It did work sometimes. Technically, they still use a form of it today. Yeah. Under dire circumstances. Uh, there is a whole heck of a lot these people didn't understand about the brain, about neuro- neurology, uh, about how our bodies function, about how our brains functioned. And it's very difficult today with all the knowledge we have to look back and say that was wrong. I don't think it was right, but it was a stepping stone to, to furthering education. A stepping stone that had a lot of suffering with it. Like, oh, I can't even imagine. Up until like the 80s, I could be wrong on that number. Maybe it's the 70s. It was widely thought that children under the age of, like, two couldn't feel pain. And I, if I'm misquoting that fact, like, forgive me, we don't always get it right. And sometimes it takes, you're like, no, of course they can feel pain. But we need, I wish there was a way to just jump all of the crap that we've gone through to learn how the neurology, neuropsych, open brain surgery brain surgery works this is like one of the first steps in that and the amount of education and understanding we have learned from where we were to where we are now saves so many lives like you said in part one they had to crawl first before they could walk before they could run and this is like this is like the very early stages of and there was not i'm sure there was but there was not a significant, notable, recordable amount of people who were doing this maliciously. No, I don't think any of this was done. But we think of a lobotomy as like a really horrific... It is. It is. But it was done with compassion, with caring, with salvation. In my, You're like, I I am suffering. How do we fix this? How do we help this person? I think that was the intention behind it, 100%. But I also think when it comes to guys like Walter Freeman... He um, went a little... They went overboard. In be- his lobotomy mobile. <laughs> they saw attention from it. They were renowned for this new procedure. This was this was exciting. This was a cure-all. This was innovative. C- he- Cutting-edge technology. Shut up, Jeffrey. That was a really... <laughs> it was. <laughs> it, was your, it was a pun. It was a very good pun. <laughs> Thank he, you. <laughs> he traveled all over Walter Freeman the guy who does the ice pick lobotomy Uh that we are so familiar with, he traveled all over the country to tons of different institutions. Dude performed like 4,000 lobotomies. And I could do it in minutes. I guarantee that he reveled in some of that attention, in some of that fame, and he probably got paid a pretty penny. $25 a lobotomy. There we go. So you say it was all about compassion. The the idea, the medical science behind it. But hey, maybe this is where the whole commercialization part comes in, where he was just like going lobotomy happy. One woman died. 
while he posed for a picture. He he held the ice pick too long, too deep. He moved and too deep into her skull and she died. For a picture. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is. Whether or not it was done with compassion, and it did work sometimes, it and was a horrid to piggyback procedure. On your for profit and attention, I'm just going to throw in uh, the two words uh, opioid. 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 Thank you. Opioid, opioid crisis. There we go. We see the pharmace- pharmaceutical companies cramming opioids down, literally down people's throats. It's a, in the past. a quote cure-all yeah. and it puts money in their pocket. So we've learned a lot. So yeah, so I, I think in, in my hot take, in the instances where it was done as a medical professional in a manner to cure, to help, to treat as horrific as it was for that day and age, it was not a bad thing. They were not doing it maliciously or to torture to hurt someone. The unfortunate outcome we know of. And like the percentage of bad outcomes, like the success rate was not high enough to mandate it sticking around. But we're still fumbling through basic psychology, basic neurology, basic surgery for heck's sake. So that ice pick that they were using, it was called a orbitoclast. Uh, it wasn't actually an ice pick, but I feel like it basically was. The, the first ones were, were. literal ice yeah. picks. And then they just made fancier ones yeah. and called them orbitoclasts. And traditionally, you would go in through the eye socket. The and, inner, the close to the nose. And uh, get in there, kind of tap a few things, move around. Stir it a little bit. There was literally no rhyme or reason. And I'm sure certain doctors, they found their quote rhyme or reason, like the pattern that they... Better procedure. Yeah. But at the same time, again, you don't have a high success rate. And so (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Some of the, the ways that they could tell if it was working is they would have their patient speak like say the abcs sing a song that they knew they understood the procedure to be finished successful once that patient could no longer continue so they would keep wiggling that ice pick around until the the patient fell silent i don't understand i don't see how that's like a positive it's it's it is mind blowing to me that they relied so heavily on this but again as you were saying this is a time where they don't have anywhere near the understanding that we do today in mental health and literally how the brain works and i think it's fascinating oh and let's not forget they were usually conscious in some yeah, which- not always but like in some way uh they did use electro Shock therapy, electroconvulsive. You feel a lot of pain that way. Oh God, Jeffrey, stop poking, pointing at your eye. Like, yes, no. I think you would. You don't think you you wouldn't would feel pain or panic if there's an ice pick going in. You can't feel anything in your brain. Oh, that's so gross to think about. Uh, And you can get a good about up to your second knuckle into an eye socket without causing any permanent damage. Oh, I didn't need to know that. I don't think our listeners needed to know that. There's not a lot of nerve endings in there. It would hurt, but not, not so, like. So what you're saying is they didn't necessarily need the anesthesia. Not not necessarily. Ugh. No thank you. Yeah. Again, no thank yeah. you. 
moving on. <laughs> so when I first started looking into Danvers, mm-hmm. I had seen... Right, right. It was like phrases. lobotomy central. Yeah. And for a second there, I thought, oh, did it start here? You know, what's the main connection? And I genuinely think a lot of it has to do with the horrors that we associate with asylums Mm -hmm. and the lobotomy by extension and Danvers State and how much it is cemented in our uh, understanding of the asylum in pop culture. One recent article even referred to it as the, quote, birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy. Which, that's just um, not actually true. I I don't think that's correct. The first lobotomy was done in 1936, and the first lobotomy done at Danvers was in 48. So we're talking 12 years later. I'm really bad at math, but I don't think that can be where it's founded if you're 12 years off. No, and I don't think they had truly any more of a connection to lobotomies than any other similar institution of that time. Mm. In fact, I did some digging. As always. As always. And I found some of the annual reports for the state hospital. So if you're interested in looking through some old asylum records, most of them, at least for Massachusetts, would be found at the state archives. So I'm kicking myself for not doing this. We should have taken a trip down to South Boston because I, I would bet that they have the records and most of them, as long as it's like a certain time frame, because, you know, HIPAA regulations, mm-hmm. like you can't learn information about certain patients. And some of them are still alive. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it has to be the old, old records. But annual reports, stuff like that is accessible. And fortunately, some of it is accessible online. So the oldest one, well, I I found one from the first year, but I was trying to find something about their first lobotomy. And I was trying to piece together where exactly this idea of Danvers State being the home of the lobotomy came from. Like, there's got to be something, right? So the, the closest one I could find to that year, so remember they did their first lobotomy in 1948, was the annual report from 1953. So in in 1953, they're already dealing, they've been dealing with overcrowding. And the interesting thing too, looking through this, some of the first, the first text is centered on, this is what we're dealing with. These are our struggles. We need money for this. We need money for this. We've already seen this many new patients. Like we need better laundry facilities, we need more space, we need more staff. The whole first couple pages was basically just outlining their grievances and why they need extra funding from the state. So definitely struggling in that overcrowding area. But when it came to lobotomies, they give a report on all the different procedures that were performed that year, why people were admitted for what conditions, and there were zero lobotomies for that year. In 53. In 1953. Okay. And four requests. So there were, in fact, requests made for lobotomies to be performed, but they were actually denied. I would I would distinctly... Think the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. If you'd asked, like, you should have asked. Uh, How many lobotomies do you think do you were think performed? They... I, I probably would have guessed... Like 50. I mean... Maybe more? Would you have guessed more? I should have asked you. No, I'm trying to like back think. 
Yeah, no, yeah, probably dozens. Yeah, probably anywhere from like forty to eighty is probably like where my number would have landed. You're, so, you, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners, a lot of folks think, like, and even having after having done the research, all the research that we did, I still would have come out with a significant number. I don't, I don't think that was happening in it, like in any way, shape, or form. Wow, and it made me question. Everything that we think about this place. I'm not saying that this didn't have like horrors inside its walls. And I know that like mental health goes into a spiral because the funding dries up because the institutions become decommissioned and the state can no longer provide the proper care. But I, I don't know to what degree it actually was the horrors that we think of when we think of asylums, like, and how much of that is romanticized or dramatized for horror movies and storytelling in general it a hundred percent happened there was definitely some oh yeah no terrors that took place in danvers state and other like other similar institutions for sure however not not on the scale that we often think that's that's what I'm coming to understand, and also you got to think this is the annual report that's being put out by the hospital itself, mm-hmm. so it's not like they're going to p- be reporting on the the terrors that are going on inside. But but even still, if anything, you'd expect numbers to be inflated so that you would get more funding, right? Right. Like if you're looking for money, you're like, we had do 45 lobotomies this year. And then it comes out that they only did 10 and they got funding for 45. Ah, right? I see what you're saying. So you're like, oh, we need 30 more beds. And there it turns out that, you know, they don't, that we need more. So that's, yep. that's what I would expect. I think it was in that one too, that I saw there, they were talking about their hydrotherapy center yeah, yeah. that was opened. And they said, despite the fact that we have had no extra staff, to accommodate this entire new complex and this, all these new treatments, we have still been able to treat. It was it was in the thousands, Jeez. like thousands of people. It was it was really cool. Um, so these I'll link in the show notes these annual reports. You don't have access to all the years, um, and you know I gotta say it is kind of weird that the year that the lobotomy came in, nineteen forty eight. The newest, the closest one I could find was 53. So I don't know what happened in between those five years. Not saying they don't exist. I'm sure the state archives has them and we can go locate them and and access them at some point. But yeah, I I was really hoping, hoping for some grotesque like reporting of all these deaths or, you know, horrible surgeries taking place. And it just, it wasn't there. And if anything, the reports just conveyed a, a still, even in the 50s, a very loving, like patient-centered, goal-oriented hospital. Like they were still looking out for the betterment of their patients. They were, ser- is- they were serving like 2,400 <laughs> people. So they were strained, but they were still pushing for that. That's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's, it's just one of those things like, you know, uh, the tunnels here, or the um, remember the uh, da, 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 the crushing at the jail, where, where the um, where the prisoners were killed. Yeah, the old jail here. You remember we were talking? Uh, we must have been talking about the cemetery. So this is like cemetery episode. Yeah, all the people that are crushed in the cemetery. Right, right. And so there are people who are crushed in the cemetery. There all are people who have a fallen at the jail. 
there is Giles Corey. So you have these three different things. And he's talking about Howard Street Cemetery. Yeah. That then push a pop culture narrative here in Salem of like this, oh my gosh, there's this thing, there's this horror. Or the tunnels where in which we have the, the, the Salem, Oregon issue, um, which then proliferates into the legend of Salem's tunnels, which don't exist. We see the same thing here at Danvers State where our idea of asylums, our pop culture narrative of asylums, the stories we've heard, and then you hear lobotomy and then you hear Danvers State and you're like, well, I know what's going on there. And you just you take that information and that is the lens that you look at yeah. this historical place through. It's this lens of Arkham, of Danvers State, of lunacy, of of modern TV and stories and horror. Yeah, American Horror Story, exactly. Yeah, you're like, I've seen American Horror Story. I, I know, know what happens there. Yeah. And again, I'm not discrediting individuals that have had bad mm-hmm. experiences there. I guarantee it definitely happened. Oh, yeah. Lobotomies definitely happened at Danvers State, but... I, I mean, there's there's some reports of patient abuse. Yep. Um, there's some reports of uh, people just sort of aimlessly wandering the halls uh, in straitjackets. Uh, so we do also find reports of malpractice and misabuse. So those reports, I tried to find those reports. And uh-huh. I'm like, really, <laughs> I'm really trying hard to like find where these sources come from and like what exactly people are referencing when they talk about Danvers being this like zombified place. Well, on, on the Danvers state website, there's a whole photo section. Mm -hmm. There's a whole document section Mm -hmm. within the photo section. Yes. And some of that uh, talks about uh, abuse and so, but that's in like the seventies and eighties. I was gonna say, did you read the abuse report? Yeah, because it. I think it is only in reference to one person. Yeah, yeah. It's only one incident. So I think. So when I was looking at those tabs, because they got it's a very well done site, by yeah. the way. The info on about Danvers State Hospital, the history, very accessible, and we'll link that again in the show notes. Um, I assume that they kept getting questions about abuse. Mm -hmm. And so this is their way of like, oh, no, there was abuse at Danvers. We have some documentation to back that up. And in that documentation, they're very insistent on the fact that if a staff member witnesses abuse of any type, they are required by law to report it to the hospital. Paperwork is done. You know, there's a lot of red tape to go through, a lot of hoops to jump through. Obviously, that's not always happening. Like, we know that abuse oh, sure. abuse is not always reported. Um, I'm sure that there was a lot of sexual abuse going on that wasn't being reported. But this whole idea of it being rampant, I don't, is, I don't know if that is substantiated. I can't find... I'm trying really hard. <laughs> I'm trying really hard. But I cannot find scores of, of these, like you know, horrible incidences. So the the closest thing I could find was a news report from 1975. There was people talking about abuse, not only at Danvers, but in mental health facilities across the country. Yeah. And it's part of the reason why defunding takes place. So this was published in the Boston Globe, August 13th, 1975. It's titled, Volunteers' report indicts 
Volunteers report indicts Danver State Hospital. I think you're right the first time. I know it's supposed to be Dan- volunteers. Yeah. It sounds horrible. That's <laughs> okay, fine. Volunteers report indicts Danver State Hospital. So basically saying a bunch of volunteers that went in to do like a study, kind of like an audit on mm-hmm. the conditions at Danver State. They had a lot to say. So I'm just going to read a couple snippets from this article because I think this is where we get a lot of our horrific interpretations from, okay. at least modern day wise. This is the 76? 75. 75. So among the findings of the researchers... Some stroke patients have lost all use of arms or legs because of lack of physical therapy. The hospital lacks medical staff with a single doctor assigned to care for patients in the entire medical building. So remember they had all the wards off of the Kirkbride complex and then they had their medical facility where they would do like operations and surgeries and stuff. So yeah, they had one main doctor for everybody. That's, I mean... I I think that's a little bit, um, yeah, off (laughs) on the ratio there. And this is, again, when they're dealing with over 2,000 people. A licensed nurse is assigned only to the day shift on each medical ward. Nurses complained about the quality of care they were able to give patients because of insufficient help and supplies. One nurse who burst into tears while the team visited the ward where she was working, said, Conditions have been worse since all the changes. Her ward housed the sickest and most handicapped patients, including multiple amputees who have lost bowel and bladder control. So again, this is 1975. They're already starting the decommissioning of state institutions. In a ward of less handicapped elderly people, a nurse was asked how often the elderly men and women were taken outdoors. She replied, never. We have no way of getting them out. There are no wheelchairs or ramps. Yeah. I know, it's a little heavy there. And maybe one last thing we talk about uh, treatment-wise, electric convulsive therapy. which thought. Shock therapy. Yep. Became big in the 1950s. All this was, although this was also used as a way to incapacitate the um, lobotomy patients. Yeah. So it would induce um, unconsciousness to a degree. And again, this is without informed consent, uh, without consent oftentimes. Uh, and that's again where a lot of this becomes problematic, where you could just shock the shit out of someone for... Till they were unconscious and complied. And sometimes then that fear of that pain stops or overrides uh, some mental triggers. And so then they're like, they see that success there, um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, like you're basically shocking people into submission. Yeah, which is uh, not how you do things. However, jumping off of that, uh, recently, we have seen some very, very positive results in using uh, electroshock therapy. I was going to say, going back to your whole, you know, you got to crawl before you can walk thing. Mm-hmm. This is definitely one of those cases where it has proved to be 
a very useful tool and mm-hmm. they're I think they're now discovering just how useful it can be when used in the right circumstances yeah. under the right conditions. Yeah. So it, it, it takes a lot to get to that point where uh, a doctor is going to, and they're going to talk you through it and, and they, this is what's going to happen. And they use different voltages at different times for different reasons in different places. And, but we have learned so much about the brain and how the neurons work and fire that we are now more able to use this effectively tool that they wielded as a hammer and now use it as a scalpel for, for, for delicate uh, work and help and genuinely helping people. It was a very cute little, <laughs> it's not a metaphor, is it? It a- might be. Allegory? I sure. don't know. That's great. That was good. Thank you. Yeah. But it comes with the suffering of a significant amount of people and that will always be a gray area. Gray matter. <laughs> oh, that was man! I that was good. So anyway, Denver State closes. <laughs> Shocker! Oh my god, you're killing me here. I'm sorry. Oh. I'm leaving all that in. <laughs> So, yes, unfortunately, Danvers State, or I guess maybe fortunately, it does come to a close. And I know I said we're going to do two parts, but... We've, uh, in typical Sound the Podcast fashion, talked too much. We don't know how to shut up. (laughs) And we don't want this to be too much of a a pill to swallow. So, no no pun. Actually, that pun was intended. That was pretty good. That was good. So, we're going to... Cut it off here, and in your final installment, you will hear us talk about the destruction of Danvers State Hospital, some of the ghost stories and lore that followed, and our visit to the property. Yes, that was fun. Sorry, you're going to have to wait a a couple days, so. uh, Yeah, it won't be a full week. Don't worry. Yeah. So, until you get round two, again. Round three. Round three. Sorry. (laughs) Until you get round three. Uh. Like, share, subscribe, follow, tell a friend. And until then, thanks for listening. See you later.